Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host. For the next half hour, hopefully we can clear our minds of the clutter of the day. Truth is, God loves you and has a plan for you. He wove you together while you were in your mother's womb and is working the plan as you allow him to do that. One day we'll know that and we'd be much better off if we allow ourselves to be molded by him. So I encourage you to be in God's word and to listen to what God says and to apply it to your life. So often we just live our lives day to day and let the urgency of events drive us. Well, perhaps the events in our life are there to help us become who we're supposed to be. Not something just to cope with, not something just to endure, but something that actually helps shape us and make us into the person we're supposed to be. Well, I'm Dave Wager here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. And as I was thinking about tonight's program, I was thinking about a poem I found in one of my dad's old notebooks that was an anonymous poem, but it, it's called More Than We Ask. Here it is. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most, most richly blessed. I know, you want me to read it again, don't you? So I will. I ask God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I ask God for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. We go into the Bible, we are able to read things that God has told us so that we can know the truth, and that truth sets us free. Jesus told us that he came to give us life and give us life abundantly. He didn't come to give us life so that we could cope with today's situations or just manage our way through a situation, but so that we could live, so we could have a purpose, so that we could set up the eternal foundation during this life for the next. I like reading the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and I thought, 
Maybe I should spend some time in the book of Ecclesiastes, just reading this wise book so that we can hear the wisdom that God wants us to apply to our everyday life. What a better time to think about what's in the book of Ecclesiastes than in the evening when we're just sitting and sorting out the busyness of the day, thinking about what things were important, the opportunities we took advantage of today and those that we squandered, and perhaps we can get readjusted for tomorrow. Starting with the beginning verse in Ecclesiastes 1, 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is, and what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. As we look at those first 11 verses, we see some very profound things said by Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. What does that mean? Well, the word vanity is listed often in the Bible. It means emptiness. Emptiness Emptiness, says the preacher. Emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness. You look at that, that's not a very popular message. That doesn't actually sound like he's given us hope. When you think about it, here's a man who has everything the world can offer him. He has as many wives as he wants, if that's important. He's got as much money as anybody could ever want. He's got authority and power. He's got peace. He's He knows God. When he goes through life, he's looking at this world, the thing that people live for, the thing that people invest in, mansions, houses, jobs, money, family, priorities in life that they put in this world. And he says, empty, empty. It's all empty. And it is. If you're living for money, you're living for your home, you're living for Whatever you can see or touch or feel, it's empty. There's a future coming, and you're going to go to that future, and everything on this earth is going to stay here. Everything that you've invested in in this world is going to stay here. Somebody may continue the legacy of, with whatever you leave, or they may throw out everything that you had. Someone might see the value that you saw in whatever object it is and keep it and keep it going, or they may consider it junk. 
I'm always amazed at some of the comments I get from people of different generations. I have something that I think is valuable, and they look at it and think, well, what do you still have that for? Why don't you just throw that out? Vanity of vanities. I've been ministering here at Silver Birch Ranch for over 50 years. I sit in my house that I've lived in now for about 40 years. I look outside. I enjoy the house that God gave me. I enjoy the area that he gave me, the national forest that I live in. I enjoy the animals and I even enjoy the garage and the little things that I have to work around in the outside. But as I look around, I realize that everything I see is going to be gone one day. Those things that I enjoy today, I will not be able to enjoy when I'm not here anymore. Somebody else will be totally in charge of those things. And either they will have seen life like I did and find those things important, or they can actually tear down my house and rebuild, or they can remodel or do all kinds of things that would be on their mind that would be important to them. I remember I was talking to a man who was going to sell a house, and nobody was looking at the house. And so one day he decided to remodel one of the rooms. So he went into his house, and he went and he painted a wall, some strange color, I forget what it was. But that became the favorite wall of his house to himself, and he looked at it and thought, oh, that's fantastic, that'll sell the house. So then new people came to look at the house, and for sure they were interested, so they bought it. He went back to visit him many months later and came into the house and went and looked at that room with the wall and realized that wall was totally changed. They totally changed the color, totally changed the room, took everything out of that room that he had just put in to remodel it and changed it all. And he thought that was the one room that I went through and changed everything so that they would buy it. Oh, they didn't buy it for that room. They just were new on the list and came and they liked the rest of the house and all the work that he put into that one room was a waste. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I've known some rather wealthy people in life and quite honestly, I've enjoyed being with them and talking with them. But the most wealthy that I know, the wealthiest, I have felt sorry for. They have so much that they have to give their attention to. And everything they're giving their attention to will one day be gone. They're going to die like I'm going to die. I will have nothing in my hands. I will control nothing. And all those who come behind me will be in charge of everything that I once was in charge of. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. I think it's important that we understand that God gave us this world so that we could enjoy the things that he has given to us. But these aren't things to be worshipped. They aren't things to control us. They're things to be thankful for and enjoyed in the moment. But we hold them loosely. Not too long ago, a friend had sent a gift to Silver Birch Ranch to help us stay open for another year. And I sent him a note and gave him a call and just said thank you. And he wasn't around, so I just left a message. And he sent me a, called me back and said, you know, Dave, that wasn't my money. That's God's money. See, we understand that all that we have is really God's, and we're managing it. 
We're not the ones that own it. We're managing it. God is the one who owns all things. For us to invest in things that will go away, not worth living for. Ecclesiastes 1.3, what does a man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You know, I, I came to this earth in 1956, and I'll leave it one day. And the sun probably will come up the day that I leave and go down the day that I leave, and everything will be somewhat normal. It'll be as if I controlled nothing. It will be like I had no great influence at all. My importance doesn't come from the fact that I breathe that I eat, that I'm here, that I can enjoy things. My importance comes from the fact that God loves me. God created me. And the day that I die on this earth, I'm going to be in the very presence of Almighty God. And anything that kept me from being in His presence before that time, I will have considered a waste of time. I'm not sure about you, but there's probably much on that list in my life where this became important or another thing became important, and I ignored God through the process. One day I'm going to be sorry that I ignored God at all for anything on this earth. I remember talking to some men at our men's retreat at Silver Birch Ranch and asked them how it's going, if they're in God's Word, and several of them tell me the same thing. No, I've been real busy, you know, with work and this, and I'm thinking, the one thing that actually matters you're ignoring, the one thing, the one thing that matters the most is that you spend time in God's Word, that you spend time thinking about what He said, that you spend time enjoying the fact that He loves you and He's got a plan. That's the one thing that's important. All the other stuff is just there. Sometimes we inflate our own importance. You see, if you've listened to Nighttime a lot, you realize that I have certain bases I keep going to. I'm not needed by God. I'm wanted by God. When I look at it across the board, I realize I'm not needed by anybody. You say, that's pretty harsh. No, I'm really not needed. If something were to happen to me today, my wife could go on. She could live without me. She's not dependent upon me for life. She's dependent upon God for life. I should not live in a way that shows that I am needed because I'm not needed and that will be proven. Everyone within the sound of my voice, one day it will be proven that you're not needed. The special part of life is being wanted. Being wanted by God, being wanted by my wife, being wanted by my children, being wanted by my friends. That's where the specialty lies. There's nothing that we can do to harm ourselves more than live this life as if we're needed or to live this life in a way where we want others to pretend that we are needed or live in a way where we hold back resources and do things so that we can affirm the fact that we're needed. We're not needed. We're wanted by God. And in healthy relationships, you're wanted by your spouse, you're wanted by your family, you're wanted by your friends. 
But in healthy relationships, you're not needed. You're wanted. Many years ago when my dad was in charge of the ministry here at Silver Birch Ranch and he died of a heart attack, the sun came up the next day. The ministry went on. Now it's gone on over 30 years without him. I would have told you before he died that he was the one person that was needed to keep this ministry going. But God knew I thought that, and he took him. And he proved that he wasn't needed. I would tell you right now that I would want him here, that I would want him around, that I would enjoy having him a part of what we're doing. But I've understood that he's not needed. And anybody who lives in this life, who lives as if they're needed, will be sorely disappointed one day when they die and they realize that life goes on without them. And in some ways, it even goes on better without us. Because in some instances, when we're trying to prove that we're needed, we're holding people back from who they should be. See, when you're not needed, you can give away all your resources because you're not guarding them. You're helping others be successful. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Ecclesiastes 1.5, the sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around goes the wind, and on the circuits the wind returns. It's like water in a way. I've heard so often that we want to conserve water, and I understand why. We probably want to conserve the the use of equipment to pump water out of the ground or, or the filtration system or something. But there's the same amount of water around that's always been around. It goes in a cycle. We use water. It goes in the ground. It goes into our drinking water. I drink it, and before you know it, I might perspire it out and it goes into the atmosphere and comes back as rain and goes back into the ground and is recycled. We don't need to save water for water's sake. We're not going to run out of water because of the way God made things. Likewise, the wind blows and some people go after the wind and they chase it in Ecclesiastes that talks about chasing after the wind. And I've often thought about that, where you can run after something, and once you get it, it's meaningless. If I were outside running around, and finally I stopped, and I had my hands clasped together, and you said, what do you have? And I said, I caught the wind. And you asked me to show it to you. I would open my hands, and there'd be nothing there. That's a lot of times what the world has to offer, wind. Now, the wind will come, and the wind will go, but when you capture it, you have nothing in your hands. Seventh birth, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. As one who has a master's in science and education, I look at that verse and it's amazing to me to think about. There are gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water going into the sea. When are we going to fill the sea? We don't. How important is each one of those little molecules of water? I guess they're important, but they're not filling up the sea. 
Oh, I know. There's a lot that goes with that. There's evaporation and everything else. When you look at it, you think, well, I know the purpose of that water is to, to fill the sea, but the sea isn't filled. 18th verse, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we think there's a new situation in place, but it's really an old situation put in a new context. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, there's relational issues between Adam and Eve and between people and God. Those issues were the same with Adam and Eve as they are today. Today, if I listen to God, my life will go the way it's supposed to. In Adam and Eve's time, if they listened to God, life would have gone as it's supposed to. See, when I'm in trouble in my relationships, it's because I'm living a very self-centered life. If I choose to live a self-centered life, then I'm going to be in trouble no matter what. So was Adam and Eve, so was Cain and Abel, and anybody along the line. You see, there is nothing new under the sun. God made us. He made us a certain way. He made us to respond to Him. And we need to understand that. There is nothing new. It's been with us for the ages. The Bible is so full of wisdom. As we read the scriptures, we can adjust our life according to things that really are true and not be frustrated with all the things that we have believed that just don't. The 12th verse goes on to say, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's an interesting statement. It is an unhappy business that God has given us to be a part of. An unhappy business of working with those who have nothing to do with God. That's pretty sad to see because we were made to be intimate with God. We were made to love God and to love one another. To be placed in a world where we begin to love things, things that aren't even going to be around in the future, things that are going to disappear. To be able to be controlled by the vanities, the nothingnesses of life is a pretty sad business. Verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it, it is vanity, a striving after the wind. A striving after the wind. A bunch of people running after wind, hoping that when they catch it, they have something. Fifteenth verse, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. This verse is a critical verse as we try to understand the scriptures. What is crooked cannot be made straight. I cannot make things that are wrong right no matter how I justify them. Today you might be trying to justify something in your heart, something you know is wrong. No matter what the reason is, you can't make something that's crooked straight. If it's crooked, it's crooked. It's not straight. You can't make something that's straight crooked because the word changes. If it's crooked, it's not straight. If it's straight, it's not crooked. God says things in his word, and he means them. And you and I can come, and we can try and make things right that are not right. 
young people have tried to make adultery or fornication right. They've tried to talk themselves into believing that somehow their actions are justified. People have tried to justify divorce. They've tried to justify anger. They've tried to justify all kinds of things. You cannot make crooked straight. The only thing that we do when we are involved in sin in our life is confess that sin and get back on track with God and live according to what his word says in the future. We need to be people who recognize that there is a right and wrong, and when there is a right, we don't try and compromise to make our wrong fit the right. When we do something like that, we come to God and we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we ask God to forgive us our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. I applied my heart, verse 13, to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven, and it's an unhappy business because we are continually trying to compromise and call it non-compromising life. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Ecclesiastes 1.16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. Indeed, that is true. He who increases in knowledge also increases in sorrow. Knowledge could be a word for cunning or awareness. You know, you see, as we know more about what we're doing, it makes us very sad to see people who refuse to do what's right because of their cunning ways and their justification of doing evil. If I could just justify all my sin to you, and if justifying my sin to you will make it so that I am just, that would be one thing. But what that does is mean that I've lied to you and deceived you, and now you might believe it and live that way too, and now there's two of us that are deceived. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow, vexation or grief. When I've been asked what I'm thinking these days or how I feel, I often answer, I'm sad. I'm sad because I see us as a nation turning away from God. I know what God's Word says. See, there's much wisdom in knowing what God's Word says. But I have grief and sorrow in my heart because I see we're not listening to God. And if we're not going to listen to God, I honestly don't see any hope for our nation. That doesn't mean I live in despair because I know that God will take care of me, but it's just not about me. It's about myself and my family and the people in this nation. It's about the people of the world. We don't have to live in a broken world without God. 
to live in a broken world without God means there's no hope of restoration. And that knowledge, that understanding, understanding that you and I have real choice, that you can make a choice today to cause you to ignore God, that can be bothersome. Knowing the truth doesn't free you from being sad. It doesn't free you from living in life and recognizing grief in life. Knowing God allows you to walk through those times knowing that you'll be cared for in the long run. But breaking your heart because the people that are in your life that are important to you don't have the hope for the future that you have. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Indeed. Well, once again, I'm Dave Wager here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. I invite you to check out those websites. And thank you for listening and being part of this evening with me. Good night for now. Thank you.